0: A lot of times, honestly, it has to do with if they're confident in themselves and whether they're all at a sit and we or not, but if they're still, you can tell that they're just like, I'm trying to grasp what you want from me, I'm just not 100% sure, then I'm not going to pick the battle of them sitting next to you.
1: What's going on, everybody, and good evening, and welcome back to another episode of Alamo Retriever Clubs Under the Arc. We're really excited to have you guys back with us this week. A couple of opening announcements, as always. The um, Brian College Station uh, Retriever Club AKC test is March 1st and 2nd. Entries are closed, but uh, y'all get out there and go check it out. Meet some new folks. Get involved in the sport. Uh, Brazosport is having their owner-handler, Qual, their junior, senior, and master test, March 8th uh, through the 10th. Uh, Waterloo is having their test. And owner handler qual March 15th through the 17th. Uh, that looks like a double junior. So, uh, again, for those of you that want to try to get a chance at two junior passes on your young pup, get out there and get after it. Uh, Lost Pines is having a midweek master on March 19th. And then Alamo Retriever Club's AKC test down in DeHennis, Texas is uh, March 22nd. We're having an owner handler qual, a master senior, and a single junior. And then the Heart of Texas Retriever Club, which is in Moody. Is March 30th, and it's a master, a senior, and a junior. So keep your eyes on Entry Express and get entered and go have some fun with your pup.
2: Yeah, we also have the Heart of Texas Dog Owners Group, Try It Day, April 20th in Giddings, offering confirmation, rally, nose work, weight pull, and retriever hunt test. There's going to be a presentation of the rules of each sport for AKC and UKC versions. Uh, And then you'll have an opportunity to try each sport from novice to advanced level, and you can try as many sports as you'd like. It's $30 for the first dog, $15 for each additional dog. Registration closes April 15th, and you must be pre-registered to join. To register, go to the Heart of Texas Dog Owners Group Facebook page and find the Try It Day event and click on the registration link.
1: There was a couple of members from Heart of Texas out at our HRC test the other day, Went not there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who all was out there? That's part of it. Ashlyn
2: and Nicole. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure there might have been some other folks.
1: Was Miss Stephanie Stephanie Marshall at started? Yes,
2: yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, Stephanie is doing a great job of uh, putting together some rally equipment for us, so when yeah. we host our first event, that we can have rally.
1: Yeah. So Miss Stephanie was helping Allie Marshall at our HRC test uh, the other really, day.
2: Really, Stephanie was. She was rocking it. Yeah, like. she
1: killed it. She did a great job. So, shout out Miss Stephanie to you and that pretty curly coat that you Nelly. had out there. What's her name? Nelly. Nelly did a fantastic job. She uh, y'all y'all looked really good out there. So, glad y'all got to come out and hang out and uh it was really nice to see some new faces. Um I hope y'all felt welcome and we look forward to the uh, to the next one. I'm still sunburnt.
2: <laughs> I'm going to be somewhere oh, for a few yes. days. Yeah. It was cool, though. Um, I had a couple people come up to me, started, and say that they'd been listening to the podcast. And then there were a couple people that were like, hey, did you bring Molly this weekend?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
2: I was like, yeah, she's on the trailer. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait. How do you know who Molly is? <laughs> and then they'd be like, "Oh, I've listened to the podcast. She's the one who snores, right, yes, yes, she is, yeah, so it was kind of funny to meet people that it's like oh you you know things about us and you and you know what we like to talk about about dogs, but we don't know anything about you,
1: yeah. I had a couple because I ran Ruby and uh as the season test dog and had a couple of people approach me and hey you're zach right i was like yeah you know how's it going and so forth and so on it's yeah we listen to the podcast you know y'all are um really entertaining and we were compared to an old sh- an old like a comedy skit out of san antonio uh excuse me out of canada and uh, the the handler was at san antonio i think and and he was like yeah um i listened to that episode that y'all had with chris ray before the test And man, it was just really, really entertaining and so forth. I can't remember what that comedy skit was, but I got a, I got a kick out of that. But yeah, I had a few people, is this the Ruby? I said, this is the one and only, the one and only Ruby Red Dog.
2: Well, I'm I'm glad they think we're funny.
1: We try. Sometimes we try and
2: sometimes we're just goofy and it comes out funny.
1: Yeah. But, uh, well, I'm definitely too immature to have my own podcast, but (laughs) Here we are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's why we balance each other out. Yeah, pretty Because I'm the technical one, and you yeah. like to have fun. So
1: Yes, definitely. So we've said it before. We've said it before that uh, if it was just me doing this thing, it'd pretty much be the same thing every week, just a different uh, different guest. So this evening, we have Mr. Rhodey and Ms. Kristen Best back on with us. They were on with us in week eight, I believe. And if y'all go to under the arc where it can be found uh you'll find the foundation balance and bow ties with best retrievers episode and they have been gracious enough to come back on with us uh this week and go over try to kind of skip over the concept of their formal fetch program and the transition into the field there's it's it's a very very in-depth topic so i don't think we can really cover it all in one episode (laughs) It it would have to be multiples but uh you know It's getting to be really busy, so we appreciate you guys once again. Uh, I know test season is kicking off, and y'all are fixing to get really busy, so thank y'all again for uh, for being on with us this evening.
4: Yeah, our pleasure. Our pleasure.
1: Y'all just had a test here a couple of weeks ago, Lost Pines, didn't y'all?
4: We had one last, uh, last week, actually. It was during the middle of the week, a, a three-day 100-dog master.
1: There you go. How'd it go? Everything run smooth?
4: Man, for the weather in mid-February, unbelievable. I don't <laughs> know what. What is going on? And we're going to pay for this later or summers are going to be tough, but it is really warm so far for February.
3: Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, We had our HRC test and um, I'm so sunburned. I'm roasted, man. Crispy. I am absolutely (laughs) roasted. So, uh, Allie's, um, her neck and the right there below her collarbones is pretty much just, I mean, it, it, it I forgot
2: to put sunscreen in that one spot and it shows.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So yeah. But uh, but yeah, so let's let's dive into this.
2: So, uh, Kristen, we're going to start with you in the formal fetch phase. Like we talked about, just a recap from the last episode that we had you guys on. Your program is quite different from traditional force fetch. And just a very simple breakdown of that would be that traditional or old school force fetch looks like pinching a dog's ear and waiting for the dog to yelp or cry out. And then the trainer would shove the dowel in their mouth and the pressure would release. And so all the way through force fetch, it was based on pressure and the dog had to try to figure things out. And if the dog didn't try enough different things to get out of the pressure and eventually figure it out, they were just going to fail out. Where you guys have produce something completely different, which is that you actually break down each individual step, you teach the dog how to do it, you reward them for doing it correctly, and you kind of like phase out your help until the dog is doing it all themselves. But it's not, you don't end up with a product that's um, like a, a pure positive, you know, because there's still some there's still an understanding that I'm not asking you to do it. I'm telling you to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So- yeah. So
4: let me, let me actually intervene for just a sec because we get this question all the time and and let me give it the clearest example. And I heard, I think it was, it was Chris Krause or Tom Garza said this, I think it was Chris. And it was the easiest explanation because people always say, well, why do I have to have my dog, you know, formally fetched? Why do they have to, they already, you know, do it. And he said, um, this, guy came out and, and, and said, uh, my dog is, is already force-fetched, doesn't need to be done, and he threw an object, and he said, fetch, and the dog went and got, it and he brought it back, and Chris looked at him and he said, your dog's just going because you threw the object, so he threw the object and said, biscuit or something, and the dog ran over there and grabbed it and brought it back. The dog didn't actually understand that the, the fetch was not an option, and so that's why it's important that we have these dogs Fetch and hold because I mean, it's a basic minimum requirement in any test you're going to run, any event you're going to run, they have to be able to do this. So let's just put that out there for everybody that's questioning whether they need to do it. Yes, you 100% definitely need to do it. And I'll let you speak.
5: Okay. And <laughs> um,
0: so um, I'm going to step back just a tiny bit um, because I really feel that it's important to understand too that the way that our formal fetch program goes, it is based off of the way we train in obedience. So we, whenever we get a dog that comes in for our gun dog program, we always start around the first of every month. Um, We start doing all of our basic obedience, working on the love languages, figuring out how the dog works, how it loves. Um, And then two weeks in, we start introducing it to the table. So the first two weeks is all just getting to know the dog, figuring out how it, how it works, and then starting on the table. We start doing treat training on the table, which is basically making the table a positive place, teaching them how to go up and down the ramp, and teach them how to go back and forth on the table. And then we start teaching them how we actually do what the next step of it is what we call maximum hold and when we're we're doing maximum hold we actually do tie them in and we treat them we give them tons and tons of treats for a couple of days petting praise whatever their love language is we're going to try to do the best that we can um
4: to get them to where it's
0: exciting
4: but let's explain to, to the to the person who doesn't know anything about the table and stuff like that the table is a eight foot long no 16 foot long um table from left to right it's about i think it's Two or three feet wide, deep. Mm -hmm. And then it's got uh, posts at the end with a tight cable strung between the two posts from one end to the other. And maximum hold is just the beginning step of hold where the dog is restrained maximally to the one end of the post. So we have a collar that is bolted to the post, and the dog has to learn how to be comfortable in that situation. So when we say maximum hold, It's the whole process, but it's with maximum restraint, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a big force fetch table, by the way. Yeah, I don't think it's quite that long.
0: But um, but yeah, it and it's about table height. That way the the dog is actually like right in eye contact with direct eye contact with me. Hmm. Um and so then when for the first couple of days we treat them right there. And so they're just Excited to go up on the table. I mean, they're flying up the ramp and going up there. We hook, go ahead and hook them onto the cable so that they, that's actually something I've learned is they get real nervous with the sound of the, the clip on the cable. So that teaching them that that's a positive is also another thing. I know that sounds like something little, but I've learned that if I can, that's something that's important for them to learn early on. Otherwise, you've got them freaked out about something very minute.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and then, um, Whenever we have a maximum hold, we're doing the treats after we get the, we actually will use a a leather glove in our hands and we'll treat with the leather glove on our hands. Um, The next step is what we'll do is we will put the glove in their mouth and wait until they get calm. And as soon as they get calm, we reward them with lots of petting and praise. So we teach them how to be still while we're putting the object in their mouth.
4: What this is is basically the dog is learning that I'm going to put something in your mouth, and it's going to stay there. Mm-hmm. It's you, you, you can't spit it out, no matter what you do. I can put this in here, and you just need to get comfortable uh, holding it and, and having it in your mouth. Now we're not and the reason she's treating it is so the glove is a positive. The glove is what provided the treat. So okay, if it goes in my mouth, that's not a big deal.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're you're making each process a uh, minimal stress. Right. And dogs obviously exactly. learn better when they're in a low stress environment. Exactly. We're making
0: it a positive for them. Um and so then the next step is we take the folded glo- we take the glove off of our hand and we fold it and we put it in their mouth. And by this point we've already taught them that if they're calm, then the glove comes out and then they get rewarded. So, then we start putting the folded glove in their mouth and by that point they're actually, you know, they're really not there's not a battle at all i mean mm-hmm. they're they're looking forward to it and then we transition over to the dumbbell
4: what you're doing is you're waiting for that dog to basically give up and and they may want to spit it out or or you know try to get it out of their mouth and it's going to stay in there if you're going to do that but if you're going to relax and just hold on to it then I'll take it out mm-hmm. you're giving them options to choose from
0: we see a lot of different Types of dogs. We'll have some that we just we get them tied in and we get them up there and they they just stay calm and they just stay completely chill. And then other ones just get nervous, even though there hasn't been a negative association to it yet. They just get nervous and so they kind of move around. And so we just have to teach them that if they learn how to stay calm, then everything runs smoothly. And uh, it usually doesn't take but a couple of days with those
4: dogs. I'll tell you a funny story. I had a Chesapeake Bay retriever years ago and I had a leather glove on my hand. And the dog was just sitting there restrained to the post, just relaxing. And I put my hand with my glove on in there in the mouth. And the dog just kind of sitting there and it starts kind of go, Okay, I want this thing out of my mouth. And it starts trying. Well, there's nothing it can do. You know, it's it's restrained, so that's the whole point, right? And so I guess the dog went to its checklist of options and said, Well, if I can't get it out, I'm just going to calmly bite down. And this dog, <laughs> without it, wasn't fighting. It was just sitting there and it started to crunch down and it punctured the glove three times into my hand. Mm. And I had to sit there and take it because if that dog learned at that point that that was going to get the glove out of their mouth, then they won and they were going to use that in the future. So over I had to sit there that wasn't real fun but anyway yeah i had
1: a similar experience with a poodle and i'm gonna don't let that hairdo fool fool (laughs) y'all them them jokers can bite (laughs) they can bite (laughs) so
0: yeah and so um then while we're doing the folded glove then we start to transition over to the dumbbell and since i've had the folded glove when i hold the folded glove in in their mouth i actually hold it where my four fingers are underneath it. The glove is folded over my fingers. And then I put my thumb right in the, basically right on their tongue. And I don't know if I'm making much sense, but then, um, and then that is actually become very important as well. And um, because the next step is to bring the dumbbell into the picture. Now I will say that in the process of this, as soon as they're calm, I'm immediately, I don't say a word whenever they're, you know, trying to fight it or anything like that. I don't say anything. I just keep my hand in their mouth. And as soon as they get calm, then I'm like, good, good hold. So they've learned through our obedience program. Good means keep
2: doing what you're doing. Right. No another, thing change I, behavior. another thing I think that's really big, Kristen, listening to you, you, you are rich in tone with your good. You talked about this previously previously mm-hmm. and recently, Zach, that if you just say good dog, they know yeah. that you're when you if you <laughs> if you did it again, it's just very rewarding, just the tone that you use whenever you're talking to the dog. And that makes such a huge difference. Yeah.
1: What she's referring to is last week we were talking about your know, your presentation on, you know, when you let your dog know that they're doing right. Early in my career it was good or good boy or good girl or whatever it was. And then it kind of turned into good boy. And then after a long conversation with, uh, with Allie and Gracie at a hunt test, it's gotten this, this voice that you're hearing now, it gets very, very animated and kind of silly. So (laughs) it it gets, it gets a little more rich in tone, not quite as rich as y'all, but it it does. So
0: yeah, it does. It does. It it does make a big difference because they feel like they're pleasing you. Right. Whenever you know you can get that good right, as well as same with the no. Like I don't have a stern no. I'm you know no means change your behavior, but I don't have to raise my voice. I don't have to be stern. I'm just like no mm-hmm. or good, yeah. you know. And it's um, that makes a big difference. Yes. And the word no is not. I this is something I cannot stress enough. The word I never pair a correction with the word no. So, and the reason I say that is no means change your behavior. And then they get a correction after the fact. So the word no is never associated negatively. It's just a form of communication to that. There will be a consequence if you don't follow yeah. the word no. That's great. And that makes a big difference because if, if they have had, the, if in their obedience training, the word "no" is associated negatively. Their brain immediately starts spinning into a negative state, and you can't always get them to think wow. clearly because yeah. you're already caught up in that the that there's something negative that's coming with the word.
4: I always I always say speak softly but carry a big stick. Mm. So if I I shouldn't have to raise my voice, I can give a correction without putting my emotion. I can give a heavy correction to a dog if I need to but without raising my voice, I don't, the voice isn't part of the correction, right? It shouldn't be. The, the word should remain the word. And then if that time ever comes when you need to raise your voice, the dog should think this is very unusual and not typical. He means business mm-hmm. because if you raise your voice all the time in training, it's just going to become the norm. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have another level to go to. So I always want to save that top level for when the dog's really in bad trouble. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and controlling your emotions when you're giving a correction is very difficult for most people. They tend to get wrapped up in the correction themselves and voice and display their emotions through their correction. Most people though, like she made a comment about how when the dog is resisting that she doesn't say anything and, and don't, Don't gloss over that and and not listen to that. That's very important because when the dog's resisting, people want to say something or do something Mm, and tell the dog mm -hmm. no or knock it off or whatever. All you're doing is pairing whatever you give that dog, whatever no or whatever you want to do with the action the dog is doing. So it's best just to ignore that behavior and let it extinguish itself. Until the dog calms on its own, and then reward the dog for the proper behavior. And so that way you can not communicate to the dog that uh, that resisting is going to get anything.
5: Yeah. You're
4: letting the dog know resistance is futile, and your your positive reward is doing is being. Pulled.
2: Yeah. So, uh, whenever I'm training, I often like to put myself in the dog's point of view and think, you know, if I couldn't speak English how would I think about about this and, and how would I feel about it? And one of the things I really love about your program is that it's based very much on teaching. You know, if I have somebody teaching me something, I don't want them to get mad and have all this tone in their voice, you know, and feel like I'm constantly letting them down. I want somebody who's working with me and wants to see me be successful. And everything you're describing, it just is so for the dog. It's awesome. Yep. That's exactly right. Um, I remember, um, back when you were mentoring me and helping me understand your process. Um, I can't remember if it was you or Rodi that told me this. Um, I had a dog that I force fetched named Birdie and I was having such a hard time getting her to transition to deliver into hand. And you guys had mentioned, you know, what were you throwing fun bumpers for her all the way through force fetch? Yes, I was. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you throw for a dog while they're, you know, in the process of actively being on the table?
4: Mm -hmm. Great question.
2: It is. Um, So we've evolved, it's kind of evolved
0: over the years. So we, we used to say, as soon as they got on the table, we did not throw anything for them. But now actually we do as long as they are not on the ground. Because they don't seem to actually
4: well, explain on the ground. They're not from the ground in the force in the force
0: set process.
4: process, right? <laughs> yeah, we don't throw them in the air. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right.
0: So when we're thank you, Rodi. Like- <laughs> and another another kind of part of that too is the way our program as goes as well is typically there is an obedience trainer and there's a formal fetch trainer. So the obedience trainer does throw things for them while the Formal Fetch Trainer has them on the table. Oh, that's so there's good. like, there's a completely different Separation. trainer for each. Yes. Yeah, so they're able to, they don't associate what's going on with their obedience trainer to the same thing as what's going on on the table. That's great. But then as soon as they've completed all of everything on the table and they've gone to the ground and we're starting to teach them hold on the ground, um, then we cut all, all of the... Fun bumpers and free trees and all that kind of stuff.
4: The reason the reason that this is important is because you're creating habits. So anytime anytime you work with a puppy, they're learning. You're teaching them things. So if you spend the first six months of their lives throwing a bumper for them and letting them grab it and run around with it and not bring it back to you and drop it and chew on it and play with it and stuff, and then all of a sudden at six months you put them through this process and you say, okay, hey. The world's about to completely turn around and change. Now you've got to have this object in your mouth. You've got to do it this way. you got to do it that way. It's not really fair to the dog, is it? You let them do it for the other way for a long time, and now you're going to change it. So one of the ways that we also get around this is if we're going to throw things for them, we don't throw a bumper, per se. So we might, might encourage retrieve drive, but maybe not with a bumper. Maybe a tennis ball or a stuffed animal or something that they can still... Be happy about retrieving and get rewarded and, and, and get the love language met, but not create bad habits with bumpers. That's
0: good. But I will say, do not throw sticks. <laughs> 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 we, we, you know, one of these days they're going to be out there hunting and they're not going to be able to find the bird. And what has always been something that they can pick up and bring back and get thrown for them again. So we tell people, do not throw sticks for them um, when they're at home. because this
4: happened last week in yes, training.
0: Yep, yep. We'll have dogs <laughs> that will just bring us a stick. They can't find the bird. They bring a stick. And we're like, oh, owners must have been throwing sticks for them before they came in. Um, huh. But on that note, another thing we do that we've learned is, so I know a lot of the field trialers do this, but in our program, we do not take puppies and young dogs before they're formally taught how to hold fetch and drop. We do not take them to the field. So like a lot of people will get young dogs and they take them to the field setups and they'll let them run those field setups.
4: And so it's the same thing I said with the bumpers with the and the forest stretch. If you're letting them go out and pick up a bird and then drop it halfway and toss it around and pick it up and drag it halfway further to you and then maybe run around with it you got to catch them and all this kind yeah. of stuff you're just teaching bad behavior. yep so if you want your dog to mark in the field you can teach them retrieve drive and you can do it after they're formally fetched but there's retrieve drive doesn't get extinguished after formal fetch and they can mark just as well i've got plenty of dogs on my trailer with plenty of accomplishments that didn't get marks when they were young puppies but got them after formal fetch and learned how to mark just fine. Yeah. So that that's the biggest thing is people well, you got to be marking them. They got to be marking at you know 3 or 4 months old and going out to 100 and 200 and 500 yards Ooh. and all this kind of stuff
2: and destroying so their joints.
4: Oh. There's so many reasons including that that they shouldn't be doing that. And so it's it it, it goes against some of the beliefs out there that you should be marking them really early. Um, but we've shown success that you don't have to.
0: Yeah. So, Kristen. Yeah, the only time we'll actually do retrieves with them is they have a long lead on them. And, we, you know, it's just like that's a, whenever we're doing that with them before they've gone through the formal program. That's the only way we will we'll do the retrieves.
2: Yeah, we talked about this in the last episode, free yeah. shaping, uh, preventing them from building negative pictures um, and then you don't ever have to go back and fix it. That's right. So Kristen, um, you you left off, we got a little bit distracted there. Uh, you left off on maximum hold. Right. So um, so
0: I, was t- I think I was talking about we were transitioning over to the dumbbell. Mm-hmm. So when I first start, Going back to the dumbbell, and I think this is really important to explain this because um, I will take you no, know, I had the leather glove in, in their mouth, and I had my thumb in their mouth right in between their like right on their tongue, and I would hold it right there. Well, then when I switch over to the dumbbell, I do the same thing, and so that I can make that transition. So, this, these are baby, baby, baby steps. These baby steps help them to gain confidence in what it is that I want out of them long term there's crossover
3: so,
2: yeah. from one concept yes. to the
0: next that's
3: cool.
2: yes
0: because at this point there's no ear there's no ear pinching or anything like that going on so then i'm holding the dumbbell in their mouth form as long as they're calm good good hold and i'm capturing the moment to be able to place the word hold in there so that they can ha- grasp the concept of the word
4: it's important to note here why are you using a dumbbell why don't you use a, a dowel rod why don't you use another object, a dumbbell. A dumbbell has two ends on it, right? And it can sit within the dog's mouth very easily and comfortably. If you had something with open ends that could slide out either side, then they would fail, right? They'd fail with that object. So we're giving them an object where they can have maximum opportunity for success.
2: That's good. And you also, um, you don't typically put bumpers and things like that in their mouth on the force, force veg table, right?
0: Actually we do, but it's always so we use we use the dumbbell and then we use what's called an orange dumbbell that's just a little bit different. And then we do the bumper and then we do a bird. And we do that in each, except for the bird, the bird I saved till the end. but we use all three of those objects in every single step.
4: The sequence of these objects is important to note here because we're going to do the majority of the teaching and training with an inanimate object, that they will probably never see again unless they were to be in obedience or something else, some other environment. But in the retriever world, our ultimate goal is that last thing, that bird, right? So we want to have all of our work done with these other objects, the good, the bad, the ugly, any issues we have with these things before we get to the grand prize at the end. And that way, by the time we get to the bird, the commands are solid. The understanding is a hundred percent. The dog knows what it's supposed to do. And there's almost literal chance of no, of not of failing.
2: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. So, um, after I've been holding a dumbbell in the mouth now, we've been at this point, we're probably five to seven days in. So at this point I'm not even done any, you know, any ear pinching or anything like that. Um, everything has just been capturing the moment, helping them to understand the concept of what my expectations are going to be. Just like in our obedience program, the first two weeks is just learning how to do all of this stuff fun before they learn that they that it's not optional. So I want to make sure that it's very clear and that they're confident in what they're doing. So then whenever I go to start the the next phase, I put the dumbbell in their mouth and then I take my hand away and obviously they're going to drop it because that's the first time that my hand hasn't been part of the process. Because dogs learn in situations, so they drop it. And so what I do is I will grab a hold of their ear but I use the butt of my thumb. I do not use my nail. I'm going to use what I get a behavioral change. So I start with the butt of my thumb and I just grab a hold of their ear. And this is one of the things that as I've trained many people how to do this, that this is one of the things that I always have to remind them. First thing is get their ear. Second thing is get the object. Take your time getting the object. So, if you're just grabbing hold of the ear and you're just putting, applying just a little bit of pressure, you're not pinching with your nail, and you take your time to get the object, that gives them more time to actually think about what they need to do differently. So, it's not too high a pressure, but there's something that's happening that they're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And then you bring the object, you put the object back in their mouth, and then I'll take my hand and kind of hold it in there and remind them of folding, and I let off their ear. Yeah. One of the things I mean people do is they will rush to get the object and get it back in their mouth. <laughs> take your time. Don't use tons of pressure on the dog, but take your time. That gives a dog time to think. Yeah about what what you want what, to what you're really wanting from them. If you rush it back in there, it, it, it's just a big blur.
4: 99% of people try to grab the object super fast, show it back in their mouth.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And
4: that way they can you know, show the dog it belongs here and it stays here and it doesn't need to come out. But you need to show the dog the positive and the negative. The negative is when it's not in your mouth, there's pressure. When it's in your mouth, everything's great. So you need to know the difference.
0: And it makes them decide to keep it in their mouth because they decided to drop it. So it makes the responsibility on them.
2: Yeah. Well, and I'm so glad you touched on the amount of pressure that you use whenever you pinch an ear. Um, I've I've heard of people using bottle caps to try mm-hmm. to get their dog to open its mouth and yep. leaving permanent marks inside the ear. So um, It makes me sick to my stomach when I hear all that because it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you said you start out at the lowest level and you kind of go up with the pinch until um, the dog shows you, okay, I'm I'm uncomfortable. I'll make a decision now. Right. But in the very beginning, I just do use the butt of my thumb because I'm just
0: teaching. Once I've taught it and then I can see that they're being like, I just don't want to do this anymore. Then I can I show them, look, I do have other, you know, I can use uh, my nail a little bit. You know, I, I have more here, but you can do it without that. And mm-hmm. usually, I mean, you do have, you have more stubborn dogs and you know, you know, you have, then you have some that are very compliant and will work with you. But um, I always start in a very fair scenario and allow them the opportunity to learn it successfully, but
2: know that it's not
0: optional at the same time.
2: In your professional experience with the thousands of dogs you force-fetched, what percentage of them would you say actually need a really hard pinch? Because I think a lot of people out there think, well, my, my dog's the one who needs that. Right.
0: Oh, uh, I would probably say about 15% mm-hmm. to 20% of them. So the majority. And, and if I do it, it's like maybe we'll have, it's after we've gone, we very fairly taught to them. We might have a day or two of hiccups where they're just like, you know what, I just am going to be. I'm going to be stubborn today. I just, I don't want to do this today or whatever the situation is. Another thing too that I've learned, and this goes back to, and I don't know that we touched on this when we were talking about obedience that we we're, I can't remember if we did, but the avoidance behaviors. So if I'm working with a dog and I put the object in their mouth and, and understand that we're just talking about fold at this point, we're not even talking about fetch because fetch comes later. The corrections will get harder if you are avoiding giving the effort. So, as long as you're giving the effort on holding on to the object, but if you're trying to turn your head the other direction, you know, if the dog is trying to um, avoid trying, then the consequence gets harder. So, they, and that's the same way it is in our obedience. So, so if you're t- turning, if like if I'm do- teaching a dog how to sit, I'm trying to work on recalls and the dog's like looking at the sky or turning its head and, you know, then they get an automatic correction. And it's kind of the same thing with, it is the same thing on the table. Mm-hmm. I'm going to apply heavier pressure if you're not giving me effort. Okay. And then they, they give you more effort. <laughs> 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 they learn, they're like, you know what? I think I'll just try. I'm like, great. I'm glad you yeah. thought about that. You yeah. decided to do that. So when um, so the maximum hold is, like, like Rudy had said, it's like when they're tied into the pole. After we've done all the objects um, at maximum hold, which would be the dumbbell, the orange dumbbell, and the bumper, then we move to what we call minimum hold. And that's about, two, the chain is about two feet. So they have more room to move around. But you've you've taught what you want them to know. It's almost like how we were talking about, too, with our obedience as we start in a sterile environment. And then you add a little bit of distraction. So moving them from the pole to the chain is basically changing it from being a sterile, more of a sterile environment of learning to adding the flexibility to be able to move around more. Mm-hmm. And so then they start getting, you add new challenges.
4: Well, what we're doing to explain a little further, you got maximum restraint where the dog is, is actually tied with its collar to the post. Very minimal opportunity for the dog to resist. The, the minimal hold is where they have a two-foot section of chain attached to that post. So they can move a little bit. They have some freedom a little more body movement. But they can't walk back and forth across the table yet. Right. That's the next step. So there's three levels of, of freedom. There's, there's maximum where they're tied in. There's minimum where they are. They have a two-foot section of chain that they can move around a little bit. And then there's walking, which is where they can actually walk up and down the table.
0: Right. And just so you understand kind of the timeline of it, I would probably say seven to 10 days we're on maximum hold. And that's the longest phase of our hold process. Then we move to minimum hold, which is the, with the two-set chain and teach the dumbbell, the orange dumbbell and the bumper. The same thing we exactly just did on maximum hold that we now do it with minimum holds. Then we transition to walk and hold. But here's something that I've learned. In the process of all of this, I never give the dog an obedience command. Okay. I used to, in the early on, I used to tell them to sit, sit, sit. Well, then when I started telling them it was time to move on the table, they, I would have such a challenge getting them to move on the table because I've been telling you to sit this whole time while you held something. So I don't, if they stand up when they're tied to the pole um, or they stand up when they're at minimum hold, then that's fine. I'm not worried. I know you know. I already know you already know the commands. Mm-hmm. What I I actually prefer for them to be standing, because when it's time to start moving on the table, it's a much smoother transition than if I've been telling them to sit and now I'm telling them to move.
4: Well, and you're muddy in the waters, too, because right. if you're going to be working on, say, hold in this example, but you're also giving them another command that you should be reinforcing if they don't do it. Now you're really giving them some mixed signals here. So uh-huh. they have multiple commands to listen to multiple opportunities for failure, and you've got to reinforce those commands that you're given. So keep it simple. Don't add any obedience commands and just work on the primary focus is on hold.
0: Exactly. So <clears> then, <throat> After we, we've moved from minimum hold and we started the walk and hold, I will actually, before we even start moving, I'll have them hold it on the table in multiple places, that I want them to stand up. So then I start expecting them to start taking steps and then they start taking baby steps and then I praise them, good. And I'm telling them hold the whole, the entire time. Um, And so then teach them to hold. These are just little fine-tuned things I think are really important for people to realize and that's why I'm going to address some of these things is have them walk down to one end of the table and don't make them turn around in the beginning. Just have them walk from one side of the table or to have them take three steps. Good hold. Take it out of their mouth. Put it back in their mouth. Have them walk to the right end of the table. Do that before you ever have them turn mm-hmm. around or move because that is just one more thing that seems to blow their minds is whenever you're like, okay, now I want you to go to the end of the table and turn around with this object in your mouth. Yeah. And they start spitting it out. And then you create a battle that's not even necessary mm-hmm. if you take those baby steps.
4: Now, the first thing you're probably going to see with most dogs, as soon as they take that first step, phooey, out it comes. Mm-hmm. That's going to be very common. When, when you start on walking, hold, just just be ready for it because they all of a sudden they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> be ready for that and, and be, like I said in, in our last seminar the, or in our last discussion, the difference between an AM and, and a pro is that the, the AM hopes it doesn't happen and the pro expects it to happen. In this situation, expect it to happen. It's going to happen.
0: But I will say that I've learned, um, not probably just over the last couple of years, that I will not use the ear pinch in that situation. On uh, the very first time we move to walking and holding, I actually will just put the object back in their mouth and I'll put my hand underneath their chin and say no, hold. Mm-hmm. And because if I pinch their ear, they associate it to the movement. Mm-hmm. Of walking on the table a lot of times. And I don't want it to have that association because then I've got to fix that. Yeah. So if I just put the object back in their mouth and put my hand underneath their chin and tell them hold, which is simplifying back to the way I taught it in the beginning so that I'm giving them clarity on what my expectation is. And then there's even times that the, it's just in their mind that when they move that it needs to come out, I'll actually just keep my fingers underneath their chin. This is just in the first teaching stage. And then I will eventually move that out, but I'll put my fingers underneath their chin and hold it there. And as they're taking steps, every step they take, I'm like, good, hold, good, hold. Even though they're really not voluntarily holding it, it's giving me an opportunity to capture the moment that I want them to understand. Yeah.
4: I would love to someday. Take a dog, any dog, and record and and write down the number of times that she says good hold Mm -hmm. because that dog probably hears it. I'm not kidding. No less than 500 times at least.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then um, after we taught the walk and hold and we've got them walking back and forth on the table, um, I'll even throw in a few sits right at the end. sometimes, not always, because that's not what my focus is. My, I already know they know how to sit, um, and it. I there's a lot of dogs that I never even use an obedience command on the table at all, and by the time we get to the ground, I mean they already know the command, so I can start pairing them on the ground, mm-hmm. and we don't have any trouble. I just have learned over the years that if I add those little things in there, I'm actually creating more work for myself because they, it creates confusion with certain dogs, yeah. so it's just not worth it. So then the next step is going. We're going back to the pool now. And now we're going to start focusing on fetch.
5: So, Halfway
3: there.
0: Yeah. Well, a third of the way.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so we go back to the pool and we're starting on fetch. At this point, they understand they actually are probably reaching for the object a little bit because I've taken my time to get the object back in their mouth whenever I started an ear pinch on hold. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So... Because like I was telling y'all earlier, I take I get my I get my hand up there to pinch, but I take my time to get the object and they're kind of like, Okay, hurry up, you can bring it back, you know, like hurry, hurry, get it here. <laughs> and so by the time I get there, they're already helping me get it in their mouth. Yeah. So once I start the fetch process
4: <clears throat> This is important it. out here because we have laid the proper foundation for the dog to understand now that you understand when this thing goes in your mouth, the pressure is removed. Now we're simply going to ask you to actually be active and reach out and grab it. I'm not going to put it in your mouth anymore. I want you to reach out for it. So go ahead.
0: Right. So once we start on maximum fetch, we go back to the pole. So we simplify back to where they learned how to hold everything. And so I always put the object behind my back. I, I want the object to be their savior. I want it to To save them from the ear pinch. Mm. And I'm going to say this too. When I start teaching them FET, so when I hold, it'll probably be, I guess I'm a, uh, probably a five, this is just a hold, will probably be a five to 10 minute session. That's all. Mm -hmm. Never go longer than that. To be honest with you, always try to end, always start on a successful note, always end on a successful note. And if I just get, one or two successful opportunities in five to ten minutes, I'm gonna make I'm gonna uh, the dog's gonna do better if I do that. So I don't go more than 10 minutes on a hold. When I start fetch, I may go two to three minutes on average. Their session is only two to three minutes. Wow. And the reason for that is fetch is an unfair pressure. They never put themselves in a position to ask for the correction. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I am starting an ear pinch when they never did anything wrong. Yeah.
4: Well let's let's explain. So you're you're reversing the the timing of the pressure now. In hold when the object comes out, pressure is applied and then the object goes back in and pressure is removed. In the fetch process, we're actually reversing that. We're gonna apply pressure and then give them the offering of the object to escape from the pressure. When they grab the object, pressure is now gone. So what she's saying is they didn't put themselves in a position where they dropped it. We're actually saying, okay, you know, here's pressure and here's your way out. Here's yeah. pressure. Here's your way out. And, and that, that's to her, she's saying is unfair because they didn't do anything wrong to deserve the pressure. But they must learn how to fetch. And this is how they learn.
0: Right. So it's a, it's an, it, they have to go through that process. It's important for them to go. It, they have to go through that process.
5: Yeah. It's one of
0: the most important parts. But that's why the sessions are so short. What I've learned over the years that if I go more than two to three minutes, and obviously I have to end on a good note. So that there's times where it goes up to five. But it's very, very rare because I want them to end on success. And so um, if I'm seeing effort from them and I see a big trend, uh, uh, I see the change, then they're actually trying to help me get it in their mouth. Then I'm going to do that two times. If I do that 10 times, they start questioning. They get confused. They get confused. They're like, why are you still pinching my ear? I did the thing, right? I did it. And that's where I think so many people go wrong and create more problems because the dog is doing the work, but they're still getting the pressure added. And so they start thinking there's something else they're mm-hmm. supposed to do. And so then you can get into a whole nother ordeal
2: at well, that point. It's like coming off the table is also a release of pressure. You put an effort and you tried. So you get to come off the table. You're done. Right.
5: Right. Yeah.
2: Right. Exactly.
0: And, um, so, so we, that's how I teach that. Um, and so then, you know, I always keep the object behind my back because, like I said, I want it, to be, I want it to, to be a positive. I don't want them to see the object and be like, oh, no, oh, no. I want them to see the object and say, let me help you. Um, let me help you get that in your mouth. And so, or help me get it in my mouth. And then, um, so then, this is, the maximum fetch. is another one of the long phases of it. So then after I've got them reaching and grabbing it, uh, I will I will actually you know, start transitioning them to the e-collar. So we start pairing the e-collar to the, the ear pinch.
4: There's an important reason why we don't introduce it until now. And that is because most dogs, when they get e-collar stimulation, they tend to lock up. They tend to kind of seize up. Imagine a guy getting taser. You know, he freezes and just locks up, right? Now, obviously, we're not hitting the dog that high of a level. But anybody's natural tendency when you receive that stimulation is to kind of tense up, right? I guess tense is a good word for it. And so we want to make sure the foundation is there that when they feel pressure, they understand the way out. And then we're going to pair the e-caller to the same pressure. And so in, in small doses at first, and then eventually transition away from the ear pinch and only to the e collar, so we're going to kind of kind of slide and phase out the ear pinch and phase in the e collar. Does that mm-hmm. make sense?:
2: Yeah, and we don't teach with the e collar. We right. teach correct. the right. traditional way, and then we reinforce with the e collar correct exactly, exactly um,
0: and then, after I've got the e collar, I can tell that they clearly understand you know I'm not having to do any ear pinch anymore. And they're understanding that they can make the pressure go away. And I mean, this is... So we use a doctor collar and it has 127 different levels. And I mean, I have some dogs that are will reach for it very quickly on a 12. And I personally don't feel it till it's a 13. So, you know, we work at the level that the dog changes the behavior. So if this dog works for me on the 12 and is reaching for it quickly to get that pressure to go away, then that's where I stay. I'm not gonna go up higher. Now every dog you have usually have a day or two where you have to go up higher than you normally work, but usually after the first day or two or a day or two of that, then they just they're like, you know what, I liked it the other way. I'm gonna go back mm-hmm. to just working at the at the number 12 or whatever their working level is. Then um, going back to the avoidance behavior. So if I have a dog, so I will go higher on the e-caller if I have a dog that's, you know, trying to look the other direction, trying to ignore, not trying to, you know, help me out here and it's trying to, you know, avoid working with me, then I will use a higher level of stimulation, whatever works to change that behavior mm-hmm. in them but where they're reaching for it. If I've got, and at that, at that point, after we've transitioned over to the e-caller and all of a sudden, now they're like, "Okay, I'm just gonna watch and I'm gonna I'm gonna try." I give them freebies, so at that point they start getting free fetches, and then they well, only
4: what's a freebie?
0: So a freebie is that I'm gonna I'm gonna bring the object out. Oh, I'm gonna bring the object out and um, give them, you know, a free opportunity to do it without any e-collar pressure at all. But I will tell you, I do not start using the word fetch until I start giving free fetches. Okay. So I will start simulation. I bring the object out. They make the object, make it go away. The word fetch comes in after they're not put, having pressure applied at That's the same so time. That's
4: yes, so interesting. So you're not saying anything. You're applying pressure, and then you're presenting the object without saying anything. And so, I mean, there is no reason for communication here. I feel pressure. Here's the way out. Once, they're, once they've are once they learned that and they're doing that reliably, then you pair the command, right? You're doing it and all of a sudden the command is the action they're already doing very reliably and willingly. And that way there is no bad connotation towards the word. The word is actually a positive because yeah. it's something that they, they're doing successfully
2: already. That's so good. Yep. So then
0: after we get through all of that um, and they're, on still on maximum fetch they're doing the free fetches and then if they choose not to work then I start the e-collar simulation, and then they're like okay okay I'm gonna I'm just gonna reach for it <clears throat> then we move to minimum fetch once we move which is back to the two foot of chain and of course this is going to allow them a lot more freedom so then you start to see some of those avoidance behaviors kind of trying to show up there you know they may try to lay down or they may, you know, try all these different things. Um, And you just work through all of those issues with them. And then you're doing the free fetches. Then you go to the walk and fetch and we do the same thing. Um, Now, I always, when I move to where they're walking and fetching on the table, I do just like I was saying in hold where I'll go one direction, teach them successfully, turn them around, go the other direction. Um, Now, I start moving the object from being in the middle of like kind of about where their mouth is at. I start dropping it down closer and closer to the table and I'm using a dumbbell at this point. And I, I will, this is something that I've learned over the years too, is up until this point, your hand has been attached to every object all the way through because you've been putting it in their mouth or they've been taking it out of your hand and now we're going to set it on the table
4: well let's go back just a little bit for a second to discuss something that's very important to note here when when people do this biggest mistake they do when they're having the dog fetch an object from their hand is as the dog reaches for it they kind of help them and they kind of put it in their mouth if you create that habit the dog has not actually learned how to pick that object up so be very careful and watch closely Make the dog take the object from your hand. Don't let them wait for you to roll it into the mouth. If you do this, you're going to hurt your dog's success uh, leading up to the next step.
0: Right. And actually going back on whenever we are teaching drop, which we I guess we really didn't go over that. We're teaching drop back whenever we're teaching hold. So we're teaching so on the hold and then we're teaching them to drop. Don't take the object don't take the object out of their mouth. Don't roll the object out of their mouth. You're doing the work for them. Hold on to the object and say the word drop and let them open their mouth and release the object. Let it be their decision, not you making the decision for them.
4: Yeah. Don't, don't pull it out of their mouth and say drop. Grab the object, say drop, let them open their mouth and move their head away from it. That's very important. You got these dogs that are sticky. Everybody's heard of sticky dogs in hunt tests. Mm -hmm. A dog that freezes on a bird or, or, or even a bumper, an ATB, whatever it is, and won't let go of it. The bro- dog was probably not taught how to properly drop an object and release it.
2: Interesting. And so
0: going back to the fetch, and I'm starting to set it down on the table. So I'm going to have the dumbbell. I'm going to keep my fingers touching the side of the dumbbell. And when I see that the dog is committed, like we're typically like half a second before it's about to pick it up, I will begin to Move my fingers away from it so that they can see that they can actually pick it up without my hand there. But that transition can be really, really—you got to be really careful whenever you're doing the doing that because if they don't understand, you're going to have to put your hand back on the object, and that's what people don't realize. They're like, "Why are they not doing it?" You know, like set the object down on the table. Why aren't they? That's why, because everything up to this point has been with your hand attached. Mm-hmm.
4: So, so you got to transition your hand away from the picture. The dog has this picture in their head of you holding on to the object and then taking it. All of a sudden, the hand's removed. That's not the same picture to them. Yeah. So you got to kind of, in pieces, take the hand out of the picture. And what you'll see initially is when you start to move your hand, the object will be sitting on the table, and they'll actually be following your hand mm-hmm. because they're trying to take it out of your hand. They don't realize it's not in your hand anymore. It's on the table.
0: Right. And so then after you've done the dumbbell on the table, you got them picking that up, doing free fetch. I, I start out with pressure, and then after they're doing them really well, then I start giving them the free fetches.
4: E-caller is the form of pressure.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. We don't use any more air pinch after we've finished on maximum fetch. Okay. Um, and then um, having them picking them up off the table, all different directions, turning and moving and everything. I'll do that with a dumbbell, make sure that's solid. Then I switch to the orange dumbbell, then I switch to the bumper, then we go get the bird. Once I bring the bird into the picture, I always use a frozen bird to start off with. And I always try to make sure it's a good bird because you when you want, when you're teaching this, you want to make sure that it's it's not something nasty that mm-hmm. they get a negative association to.
4: And a smaller bird, a, a, a yeah. pigeon, a teal, something that they can easily pick up.
0: I think we have one bird actually that we've had for about six or seven years that's been <laughs> sitting in the freezer. It's the perfect size. And this same bird still has helped all these dogs. That's um,
2: funny.
0: Yeah. You must have a and, good
1: freezer. Uh, it's a great freezer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it didn't have a whole lot of feathers left on it, but it still is doing well. <laughs> Uh, and so I think he needs a name, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so whenever it's time to bring the bird in, I go all the way back to maximum hold. and we do it it's just usually one five minute session where we do maximum hold, minimum hold, walk and hold. we We literally do all the steps that we've done with all the other objects, teaching everything with all the other objects. We go back with the bird. But we can do it in one or two days where we just go back and we just say, "Okay, all you're going to do this bird exactly the way you did all these other objects. And they're like, oh, okay, so I'm going to have to hold this. And then, you know, then we move to where they're picking it up off the table. Usually it can be just in one session or two. And then um, then we graduate from the table.
4: And so the key thing to take away here is. The bird is the last thing that we do in the set in in the process. We we've taught everything else with inanimate objects, and that way the bird is again built on success.
2: There's no negative association,
0: right, right, right. Um, and I will I'm going to back up just a little bit. It's not unusual to see when you do start using the bumper. So we've used a dumbbell to teach, and then we start adding the, dum- the bumper in to see some some. Um, avoidance behaviors pop in because the bumper at this point has been their game and now we're making it formal. Mm-hmm. And so they might do great with the dumbbell and the orange dumbbell. but you bring the bumper, they're like, hold up. This is something I like to do. I like to play with this outside. Why are we bringing this in and making this a formal thing? So if you have that issue um, and you don't can't seem to move forward, go back to the dumbbell and orange bumper. You always simplify back and then bring the bumper back into the picture. So you you create, you know, you always step back and make sure that they're doing it really well with the dumbbell and the orange dumbbell. And then you bring the bumper all in the same session just to say, okay, I know you know this. You have to do it with the
4: mm-hmm. bumper. The, the bumper should have the rope cut off. If oh, you had yes. already mentioned that, we, we don't have a rope on it. And I'd also recommend using a white one and not an orange one. It's just uh, easier for them to see. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, you don't want the ropes because then you end up teaching them how to. They'll get, they'll try to grab the rope just to be lazy.
2: <laughs> that's much easier so, to hold.
0: Yeah. Yes. Or it's just not what I'm telling you to, you know, like they'll, sometimes you get the ones that are stubborn and they're like, well, I just, I don't want to hold the actual bumper. I'm, I'm going to try to settle for the rope. And that's not acceptable. Yeah.
1: The negotiator.
0: Yes. The <laughs> negotiator.
1: Well, we're going to, we're going to talk about lazy holds or holding by the rope. What about, The infamous cigar hold.
0: Uh, I knock it out.
1: Ah, okay. Because I've heard it argued both ways. You know, oh, my dog's got that cigar hold. I hate that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the argument, well, you know, when they pick up a bird, I've had dogs bring birds back by the neck, by a wing, down by by their tail feathers. And and then, of course, that perfect calendar photograph center mass hold. You know, mm-hmm. so with cigar holds and with a bumper, you said you, you'll you knock it out.
0: Yeah, I will. And, and you know, every dog is different, too. So, like, if I've had, if sometimes it's a battle that I'm going to pick at a specific time through the process that I may not pick the battle right in the beginning. It might be something that I'm going to pick near the end mm-hmm. or vice versa. Right. You know, every dog is different. And you just kind of, the more dogs that you train like this, the more you realize, okay, this dog it's going to be better for me to address this situation right now because I can tell it's going to be a problem or it's something that I'm going to address later on.
4: I mean, a good example of this is if you're you're working on the ground, we're going to jump ahead to a second here. But if you're working on the delivery process where the dog comes in to heal and sits and you're that's what your focus is on and you're working on. that, And the dog comes in with a cigar hole and you start knocking the bumper out. Now you're working on a multitude of things. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on one thing. Or that's what she's basically saying. Right. If you're working on, on what we call the swing heel, then, then let them swing in. Let them heal properly. Get that fixed before you start knocking out of their mouth, creating another situation where they could fail. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah,
0: just always, yeah. You always got to remember to pick your battles. Don't pick all of them at one time. Yes. You know, Figure out what, you wanna, what battle you want to pick at this moment and work through that issue.
4: That's the hardest part for most people to figure out is yeah. when you're training a dog, especially in the field, they, they see this, they see that and they just want to focus on everything. And you just blow a dog's brain. If they're just, God, everything I do, I get in trouble. Right. For. Gee, yeah. I don't want, I don't like it. And then yeah. you get the, the pouty dogs and the dogs that don't want to work for you because mm-hmm. they can't do anything right for you. Yep. You're too busy picking on them for everything. Yep. So you know, pick your battles. Yeah,
1: they're not machines, folks. They're they're beings.
0: That's right. That's <laughs> right. So now we're going to the ground, and we're going to start with ground hold. And how base. many
4: how many weeks along are we?
0: Um, so we're in. We're probably about about uh, four to five weeks in at this point. Okay.
4: How many of you, you know, listeners out there that are probably listening to this go, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that the process could take this long because most people <laughs> do it in a week or two. Right? And, and they just get floored at how long our process is. It's very detailed, very thorough. But that's not all they're doing. They're being also trained for obedience at the same time. Yeah. So they're getting multiple sessions a day. This is not all. Word. And you can do the same thing at home, too. Um, you don't have to just work on one thing at a time.
0: So now we're starting, to, we're going to ground hold and we're going to do the, basically day one, I'm going to have them sit next to my side and I'm basically simulating the maximum hold. So because they've learned everything on the table, now I'm going to show them on the ground. So we're going to, I'm going to have them just sit next to my side and I'm going to have them hold the object and I'm going to have them drop, hold, drop, hold. And then we're going to call it.
4: Right here, you will notice probably that you will see the dog show his cards. And what I mean by that is, now the dog is not isolated on a table anymore. They have their feet on the ground, and they have a whole lot more freedom than they've had up till now. And then you'll you'll start to see some of these dogs go, "Uh huh, I got you now, sucker. I can do this or I can do that." <laughs> so, kind of be ready for that, yeah. you know. And that's why she said, "Put them in a sit, put them in a controlled um, oper- uh, <laughs> position, so that you can work on it."
0: Or, or if they're just standing next to me at heel. it. I just don't want them moving. I'm trying to simulate the closest thing to what we did maximum hold on the table. But I do want to make sure and say we always have them on a leash and a prong collar and the e-collar. And um, I can't stress this enough. Keep a long lead. If you, Once you start pursuing further into doing the ground stuff, make sure they have a long lead on. Do not let them have the freedom to... Not come back to you properly or anything like that. If you have a long lead on them, then you have a way to reel them in. Another thing to really to know too is the e-collar. Once we hit the ground, the e-collar is only used for whatever we're working on for hold, fetch, and drop. I will not use it for sits. I will not use it for here. I will not use it for down or whatever. Whatever a command, even though they're conditioned on the e-collar. I will not use that e-collar for any of their obedience commands, only for the whole fetch and drop. Problem. Really simplify it so they, they know what you're teaching. That's right. And that's why I make sure that I have a leash. And when I, like, right when we first get on the ground, I'm just gonna have a six-foot leash because they're not going any further from me than, you know, six foot. But then once we actually start tossing it later on, then I'm going to make sure they have a long read on them so that I can bring them back in. I can give the corrections. So if, if I need to give a correction for a sit, um, you know, I'm going to do that with the leash. Um, but that, I'll get to that in just a minute because that, there's some important stuff there too. So we do the ground hold sitting next to my side. Next day, we're going to do it. What, what just like a minimum hold where we're going to move a little bit. So I'm going to have to put the object in their mouth. I'm going to tell them to hold. We're going to start to move a little bit. Um, so they take a step or two. And I want to make sure that they grasp the concept of that they've got to move on the ground with it. Um, and that does not mean that they have to be at heel. That just means that I just need them to move. So I'm not worried about the obedience at this point. This was one of my hardest things to learn. Like when Rody started teaching me all of this stuff and he was like, we already know they know those commands right now. we're just focusing on teaching them to hold or to fetch. We can all we're gonna bring all of the commands in soon, but don't don't worry about how pretty their heel swing is or how sloppy their heel swing is or anything like that whenever you're working on holds. yeah, that'll clean itself up
4: later. Think of it like a like you're doing a painting and 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 I don't paint so i'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean I can imagine I've seen, you know, stuff on TV where an artist will be like working over here for a little bit and then he'll work over here a little bit and he'll work over here different parts of the canvas until the picture comes together. That's what we're doing. Just because we're not working over here on this side of the paper doesn't mean that it's getting bad, that it's going downhill. It's it's fine. Don't worry about it. We're gonna work on on this other side of the paper right now and get this real good and then it'll come together beautifully. Right. I like that. I'm gonna trade it. I'm going to trademark that.
0: Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so we've done, the, we've done basically maximum hold on the ground by being next to me. Then we're going to do the minimum hold, which is where they're just taking a couple of steps, and maybe walking around me, not even expecting a heel swing or anything like that, just learning to move with the object in their mouth at hold on the ground. Then we'll start doing what would be walk and hold, which is where I'm going to go walking. I'm going to you know, they're still on a six foot leash. We're going to walk, good hold, good hold, come into a heel swing, deliver the bird, you know, whatever. And we're doing a dumbbell. All of this is with a dumbbell. Um, I'm not going to bring a bumper. I'm not going to even bring the orange dumbbell in. I'm just going to do a bumper and a bird, but at the very end. So all of this is going to be with just a dumbbell. Because if we have any battles, I want it to be with the dumbbell. I don't want it to be with a bumper or a bird. So, then. After we finish um, doing the ground hold, then we're going to start doing maximum fetch on the ground. So we're going back to next to my side. I'm going to put the object behind my back just like I did on the table. I'm going to bring use low pressure and I'm going to bring the object out and they're going to reach for it while they're sitting next to me or standing next to me.
4: You're going to put it out kind of in front of their face.
0: Right. And have them kind of reach for it. And then I start moving that closer and closer to the ground until I can get them to start picking it up off the ground.
4: Again... When you pull your hand away, Mm -hmm. after you've set it on the ground, they're going to follow your hand. So be ready for that. Go back to the object, put your hand with it so they can see the object on the ground. Just be ready for that.
2: And even though you addressed that, sorry, Kristen, what were you going to say? Even though you addressed that previously, it can still be kind of like a, a empty space in, in the steps like the dog is going to struggle with that potentially again when you transition at this stage. J- don't think that just because you you talked about it one time that the dog has it 100% and will never struggle with it right. again, right?
0: Right. And they learn it in pictures. So the picture that they know it on is the table. They don't know it on the ground. So that's why I'm doing it. because It'll
4: be an easier transition.
0: Right. Because they'll be like, oh. Okay, this is kind of like what we were doing on the mm-hmm. table.
4: I vaguely remember this, mm-hmm. right? But they're not
0: just gonna—it's not just gonna transfer just straight to the ground. And they were never next to my side, so that's a new mm-hmm. picture too. Yeah. So we've got a lot of new pictures um, in front of them. So then I start just taking my steps forward and getting closer and closer to ground. Then they start picking it up off the ground. Then I start doing short tosses, like a foot. And I do not tell them to sit next to me. I do not make them stay next to me and and be steady. It's I almost take advantage of their movement to get them to start moving ahead and mm-hmm. moving forward. And it's not unusual for me. Actually, I do this most of the time. I'll like I just walk. I'll walk forward, let them pick it up off the ground, and I keep walking forward. Mm-hmm. I don't even worry about the heel swing. Then I drop it in front of me, and I keep their momentum going. Because if I try to pull them back into a heel swing I lose the momentum. Hmm. I'm trying to get that momentum of them going out in front of me and picking it up off the ground. And then after they're doing that really well then I'll pull a spring heel swing in and have them come in and sit next to my side and like now, yeah. and then we start putting the whole picture together for them.
4: So do you when you go forward and picking about the object on the ground and you go forward a step or two you make them sit and then take the object spent on the valve. <laughs> you can't.
3: I
0: can, because it is true. I mean, if I've got a dog that, you know, if 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 I'm creating, if there's a battle in the sit, I'm not gonna pick that battle. So I'm gonna if they we just walk and they're just standing there, that's fine. I'm gonna. I mean, I can get the sit out of them after I get the the fetch in.
4: Okay, so they reach down, they grab the object, they take a step or two, maybe three, and then you take it from them.
0: Right. I'll tell them good hold. So after they fetch up, then I'm like, good hold, good, good hold. And then um, if they're standing there and I can tell that they're, a lot of times, honestly, it has to do with if they're confident in themselves on why they're all out of sit in there or not. But if they're still, you can tell that they're just like, I'm trying to grasp what you want from me. I'm just not 100% sure. Then I'm not going to pick the battle of them sitting next to me.
4: So how do you put the object? So this is important because. You don't want to use their natural desire to retrieve the object. You want to put the object out almost in an animal motion. So you're kind of setting it out there and then making them pick it up instead of tossing it. Right. Right. You're putting it into a controlled situation first.
0: Right. Right. And then after I can tell that they've got that and they're confident with that, then I'll start tossing it. And then I'll toss it as far as I can throw it and then have them come back into a hill, hill, hill swing and, and have them hold it and then have them drop it. And then I'll bring the bumper in and then I'll bring a bird in. Doing, but I'll, I always start with every new object. So like even though we just did the dumbbell with all of those steps, I'm going to bring the bumper in and I'm going to have them sit next to me and I'm going to have them hold it. Then I'm going to have them walk a little bit and hold it because I want to make sure that I'm being fair to them and showing them every picture. Now, once I bring the the bumper in, we're, it will be like a five minute little session of what maybe took us two or three days with the dumbbell.
2: Yeah,
4: it's kind of like whenever you watch a show, you know, one of these ten episode shows, and they'll do a recap in the very beginning. Yeah, you know, let's let's go back and 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 touch on what last week's episode was on. And now we're gonna le- watch the net, the new episode this week. You, you want to do that? It's Very important for a dog, because what it does is it starts the the session off in a positive way. But it also makes sure, in case you forgot what happened in last week's episode, let's remind you what what you learned and what you already knew, and let's make sure you remember it before we go into the next step. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's uh,
2: it's just setting them up for success. Mm-hmm.
4: If you can't tell already, I like analogies. Yeah,
2: well, they're great. They're so helpful in really understanding it. I love the intricacy and the language that you guys are building. You know, we we've talked a lot recently about how dogs learn in pictures, and it's almost like if you took highlighters of different colors, you know, and you you have one that's one lesson, and then your next phase. Um, is a new color, but it kind of goes over top of the other color and they blend together the The way that you 've blended the steps is fascinating, but I can you know as i 'm breaking it apart in my head i 'm like this is so cool
0: <laughs> yeah it's it 's pretty neat to be able to watch the process um and so then after we 've done the i 've been hand tossing the bumper we 're going to do the bird just like we did the bumper. We're going to start back at hold next to my side and go through all of those steps. And then we bring a bird boy in and that's going to be on really short cover right next to the kennel. It's not going out in the field, not riding on the trailer yet. We bring a bird boy in.
4: Now let's, let's take a time out right here because there's one step that I really like to do.
0: Oh yeah. I don't, I don't do it.
4: (laughs) She she's not keen on it, but I think it's important and I do. So the, the, the <laughs> listeners out there can decide for themselves. I believe that it's important next to do a ladder drill and in my ladder drill, by, what that is, is it's multiple objects spaced out like roams on a ladder out in front of you in a low cut yard area. And what you're looking for is you're, you're walking the dog at heel and you're going to walk by these objects. And let's say you pick up the first one but you don't pick up the second one. Then you pick up the third one. And then you don't pick up the fourth and the fifth one. and You pick up the sixth one. And these different objects can be the dumbbell, the orange dumbbell, um, any kind of objects you've used on the table, birds, bumpers, whatever. If your dog has a favorite and they're going to want to naturally impulsively go for that. Nope. We're not going to get that one. We're going to get the ones that you probably don't want to get. And I'm going to make sure that this dog understands that when I say fetch, Whether you wanted the object we just passed and you don't want the object we're approaching, you still have to get it. And I think it's important for the dog to see an object on the ground and I walk up to it and I say fetch. And you have to pick it up. Whether you want to or not, whether it's your favorite or not, doesn't matter. And and then we'll turn around at the end of the ladder and we'll walk back down again. And we'll do this three, four loops around it. And I'll just work on objects that they either, one, don't want to pick up or can't pick up very good. Maybe they're struggling on a bird. Then I may put three birds in my ladder. And, and we'll pick up, you know, every other object of bird, I'll pick up a bird. But use it to work on the dog's weaknesses. And, and the other thing we do, and this is a little, a little secret for most that people probably don't even know we do for our junior dogs, one of the things that happens at a junior test that most people don't, that they don't plan for is, of course, everybody does the junior dive, right? Everybody wants to snag <laughs> the bird. But, but why do they want to do the junior dive? Because they know if that dog drops that object, they might not pick it back up in a test. And what happens if you don't pick it up in a hunt test? You're out, right? Yep. You can't sit there and say fetch multiple times or, Move the bird around. You, you know you're limited to that bird sitting there on the ground, and they have to pick it up. So one of our little secrets, you know, when we're prepping for a test is, and, and I'm jumping ahead, but I just thought of this, and this is probably important for some people to practice. When the dog comes in and swings into heel, I mean, if I hope you're doing that before you run do your test, but the dog swings in and sits down and grab the objects say drop right, and then as soon as this release from the dog's mouth, let go of it, let it land on the ground and then go fetch Mm. and make sure they'll pick it back up because that might happen to you at a hunt test and you better be expecting it and you better be ready for it. So train for it ahead of time and be ready for it. And that's where this ladder drill is effective because it's on the ground and I'm looking at it and you're looking at it and I'm saying fetch and you got to pick it up. So, okay, back to your bird boy. No, you're
0: good. (laughs) So my deal on the ladder drill is, is it's typically like a three to five day that, that and I obviously, I'm not in the field, so I don't see the benefits of it the same as what he sees. So um,
4: we've trained plenty of dogs that didn't get the ladder drill, so it's not a mandatory requirement. I just think it's a nice touch. Right. That's all.
5: Yeah,
0: yep. Um. So now we're now we've got bird boys. Um. One of the things that I always like to do whenever I start with a bird boy, we are we're going to start with a bumper. Um, I'm going to have the dog hold it. And then, you know, before, just because I always simplify back to the what I know is successful so that I know the dog has confidence before we step to the next move. I always have a, when I have a bird boy, I always have them stand way far, not right next to my side, um, where the dog can get to them very easily. I have them stand way out and throw way in. Angled in. Angled in. Because I need to get the dog to come back to me. And if the bird boy is too close to them, then you have that issue. So if I have the bird boy, like way out in the the little area where, and we also have very low cover um, of grass, we want to make sure that it's successful and they can see the bird whenever we're first doing this. But that way, the, the dog is more likely to turn around and come back to me than to go to the bird boy. Because they've never had anybody out there in front of them. So they just, they, a lot of times they would, if I've got them close to me, then they end up just going over to the bird boy. And then I have to tell them no and I have <laughs> to have them come to me. And it's just a, it's an unnecessary battle.
4: Kind of like the kid on the soccer field that's dribbling down to score a goal and he sees a flower. <laughs> keep, keep, your, keep your eyes on the prize and make that bird boy at first very minimal distraction.
0: Right. And so we'll do that with bumpers, toss them all different directions and everything, and then we'll bring the bird into the picture. And then after that, then they take it to the field and they show that same picture with a bird boy, but that's after they've traveled on the trailer. Okay,
4: to what the about field.
3: gunfire?
0: Um, we really don't do gunfire. Um, before they get to
4: the field. Before
0: they get to the field. That's, that happens
2: once they get to mm-hmm. the field. Yep. that's. I'm glad you pointed that out. Mm-hmm. A lot of people. And think, then we they,
4: also do the. I'm sorry, we also introduced the hey, hey, hey part. And yeah. the reason and it's, it's important, and people don't realize it, when a dog is in the field and they are looking for a bumper or a bird and they can't find it, and we ask our bird boy, bird girl, assistant, whoever's throwing the bird, to help the dog, and they start trying to help the dog. The dog, it, it helps us if they back at the drill field when they're teaching the dog how to retrieve from bird boy, if they'll pair the hey, hey, hey before they throw the bird, and that way the dog learns that hey, hey, hey is a positive because the the hey, hey, hey is the attention getter that we use in the field to help the dog locate the bird that they're looking for, and the bird boy says that. So if we can pair that in the the drill setting back at the kennel with Kristen and and when they're doing the formal fetch process, and it's paired, then it works for us in the field. If it's not paired, then it takes us days to reteach that, and it's just lost time. Mm-hmm. So if they're having a bird boy, introducing a bird boy into the picture, then throw the hey-hey in there, pair it, and save us the time in the field. Right. That was a long uh, Our explanation of, of the <laughs> process.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's still more questions to go. but <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> sorry, we asked a lot of questions in the beginning. Yeah, we figured out that you have a lot of material, so we're being quiet and letting you. Yeah, we're yeah, we're here.
1: just letting y'all go through it. But um, so, Rodi, what I was going to ask is, you know, going forward, coming out of formal fetch or going going into the the drill field, where. I may be jumping a little bit ahead here, but um, you know, the processes of like forced to pile, you know, the steps and, you know, what's the dog learning in each phase, you know, when fetch starts to become back and so forth and so on. When yeah. you, when you come out of formal fetch and start going into the drill yard or the drill field and then transitioning to the field where they're starting to look at marks and you're cleaning up, you know, the uh, swinging into heel and so forth and so on. Okay. So, here's an important, I guess, difference than
4: most, you know, that we get that question all the time is, is, you know, my dog is going to come out of force fetch and go straight to force to pile. Right. Absolutely not. Not in our program. Okay. Um, the dog, here's where we play catch up on marks, right? We haven't been throwing marks for the dog in the field. So we spend at least a month and if not two months of daily marks in the field. And we're looking to get the dog, you know, the dog has been through, it's been through a lot, right? It's been through, you know, six weeks now of the formal veg process. Um, I mean, while it's not a, a, a terrible thing to go through, it's not running and tromping through the fields and having a blast either. Right. So we feel like it's important to get them back out into the field, or get them into the field, and start teaching them the process of what we call a simple retrieve. And that is the process of going, the process of finding, And the process of returning and Mm delivering. So we're going to start steadying the dog. We're going to start teaching them what steadiness is. Not it depends on the dog again. But if the dog has a lot of drive and is really amped up we're going to definitely push steadiness from the beginning. Right. If the dog is kind of a, a little, you know, lackadaisical in this drive and it needs to be, you know, have some fun, then we're probably going to start letting the dog maybe take off a little bit at first and then slowly bring the steadiness back into play. Right. So we're looking for steadiness. We're looking for the dog to extend out further than what we can hand throw because the owners probably have hand thrown a lot of bumpers for these dogs and their pattern on going 30 yards, that's it. Right. So we want to stretch them out. Ideally, if we can get them out to about 100 yards on land, that's great. Um, the dogs probably not have much water work, you know. Th- maybe the, the owner doesn't have access to water or something. So we're going to do some water. And sometimes some of these dogs come to us not knowing even how to swim. Mm-hmm. So the water process can take some time. Right. Um, bringing the bird back, you know. Or, no, no, actually, let me cut back one. Um, finding the bird. Some of these dogs come back w- or come out with maybe not a lot of hunt desire. And they learn to, eh, I didn't find it. Oh, well, I'm going to return to sender and, and and not bring it back. Well, no, that's not an option. So we're going to try to help them at first. And the, the bird boy whoever's throwing the birds is going to help them back out of the field and teach them, it's, you know, look out here, it's out here somewhere. But then if the dog has a chronic issue with going out there, putting on a half-hearted, you know, attempt at finding it and giving up, then we're going to kind of push the issue and say, you know what? there is no option to return without it you must stay out there and find it so that's where the, the actual fetch pro, uh, word is important because when they come back without it we tell them no fetch right go back out there and find it so all this takes a month or two months before we ever go back to the drill field we want them having a blast every day out yeah. in the field yeah learning new stuff awesome attitudes the last thing i want to do is bring a dog off to out of the formal fetch process and throw them straight into a force to pile drill where they're not going to have much fun i want their attitudes to be great coming in and let's face it our basic gun dog program is four months long so it includes basic obedience force fetch and a couple months in the field and they don't need force to a pile because the dog doesn't it's not going to know hand signals it doesn't need to know to go off back what else I mean, if you teach to go back, what are they going to do? Just run out there. Right. You have, that's like teaching a dog half the alphabet. You're not helping them learn the whole alphabet. You're not teaching them words. You're not learning sentences. So there's no sense in teaching them force to pile if you're not going to do hand signals. So force to pile comes into play when they do our advanced program. So when they come back, we usually let them in the field for two months, maybe send them home for a month, let them reacquaint themselves with the owners. Um, let the owners kind of practice with them and play with them and figure out. You know, having you know, this is a, a new car I just bought. And I want to kind of test drive it for a little while, and then they bring it back to us for advance. Right now, the advanced program for to Pile is basically an extension of what she's already done. She's taught the dog right. to fetch. I'm bringing the dog up to a pilot bumper six feet away, and I'm telling the dog fetch. And they know fetch because they've been taught it already. And I'm without getting to a bunch of details. We do um, we force them to a pile, which means we use an e caller nick whenever we say fetch, and then we change the word to and then we back up from that pile. So that when I say back back to the dog means take off in this direction and go get something out there. There's a pile of bumpers waiting for you. Right. So we we actually, but even. Going back, we before we even do force to pile, we teach something first. Before that, what would that take a guess?
1: Uh, babe, care to take a guess?
2: I don't know. <laughs>
4: <laughs> we actually teach the sit whistle before mm-hmm. we teach force to pile.
2: Yep.
4: So when a dog comes in for advanced training, the very first thing they learn is sit whistle, and that can take um, I'm a I'm a very demanding person on the sit whistle. I, requ- I I do not like loopy sits, slow sits. When I blow that whistle on a blind, it means you're three or four feet off. And if you're not sitting fast on that whistle, you just cost me an extra ten feet, and now I'm 14 feet offline or whatever. Right. So I, I'm I'm really a stickler for prompt, quick sit whistles. Right. Um. And I always say, I've always said that to a bunch of the people that come out and train with us. You can tell an amateur trained dog from a professionally trained dog by their sit if whistle. you look at how fast they sit on a whistle. Yeah. Because nine times out of ten, um, the pro dog is going to sit a lot faster. Yeah. So sit whistle and then force the pile. And then we do what's called a baseball drill, where we put them on the pitcher's mound. And we teach them first base, second base, and third base with hand signals. Right? the right over the right back the left back and the
1: left over. Um do you want me to keep going? I mean, we could go for days on this, buddy. But <laughs> <laughs> I I would love to, but um but you know, like I said, just you know kind of coming out of coming out of formal fetch, you know. And I honestly didn't think about that. You know, I'd mentioned, yeah, I'm probably jumping ahead here, you know, but there's uh before I asked the question, I didn't really give it a whole lot of thought. So, but you know, there's a lot in between there a lot in between there before you ever get to the drill yard. Um, yeah, so for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, that goes, or yeah, it goes back to what we talked about when you were on last, you know, not being in too big of a hurry, you know, bring them back and kind of get their mind right and let them have fun with it before you, before we just ask them to do the next, because drills aren't fun. There's, there's nothing fun about drills in my, in my, in my opinion.
4: There's some of them that absolutely hate drills and there's others that just love it. And (laughs) if I'm working, to be honest with you, when when I pull up to the drill field and I've got say three dogs, I'm going to, if I'm smart, I'd pull the dog out that doesn't really enjoy drills first while I'm the most patient and the most refreshed and then save my fun dog for last. But honestly, my impulse every time is to open the kennel for the one that just can't get enough of it, and and jumps off the trailer and runs out there to that force that pile of bumpers and grabs one and brings it back to me. <laughs> and says, Throw this for me. Yeah, those are my favorites. I absolutely love those those workaholic dogs that just they they just can't wait to work.
1: Right. You know? Yeah. Do you have anything you wanted to tack onto that?
2: I like the fact that you like to send them home to get reacquainted with the owner because they've, they have, they've picked up so much through obedience and force fetch and field marks. And, you know, if you send, you know, a Ferrari home and they don't know how to use the buttons, right. Or or steer it, how do they drive the Ferrari? So that giving the owners a chance to learn how to use the training before you move into the next stage, I think is really important. Yeah.
4: For sure. Yeah, I was just given. Uh, I was just given this example the other day, actually, and um, the comment came to me. Well, you can fix it. You know, my dog's doing this at home, but you can fix it. Well, the the problem is that, yes, I'm a mechanic, and yes, you can bring your 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 dog to me or your, your car to me, and I'm going to fix it, and I can get it to run really good for me. But you're not the same. Handler, you're not the same driver as me. so. When you get in the seat, you may. Well, I'm a short guy. You can probably reach the pedals. But <laughs> if I was a, if I was a really tall guy, maybe you couldn't reach the pedals, or maybe you don't like how how tight the steering is, or maybe you don't know the brake from the gas pedal. I mean, there's handlers, just mm-hmm. owners that don't understand how to handle it all. So you know, you may be pushing the gas pedal when you need to be pushing the brake, or something like that. And, yeah. and if you don't practice in, in and take the dog home and, and and work through some things and then i'll say I, you know i'll text you in a couple of weeks and i'll say how's it going you know is it you know give me the good the bad and the ugly you know don't just sugarcoat it tell me what's wrong tell me what the problem is you know the issues you're having because when you bring the dog back to us for advanced training i want to know what it's not doing right for you so that i can work on that exclusively and fix that right. you know we don't want that to be a lifelong problem and you know the most common problem that we get is breaking um you know then and the owners "Ah, that's not important you know i don't care if my dog breaks it is important it ruins the hunt for all the other hunters that are there yeah and 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 especially if you're trying to control the dog yelling at it and it's not listening to you Mm -hmm. or maybe there's another guy there that has a dog and his dog's not getting to pick up any of the birds because yours is breaking constantly those Mm -hmm. are we spend a lot of time on steadiness for a very good reason and if if you don't take those things seriously let's face it, the most obvious thing that can happen next is, you know, with a dog jumping out in front of a bunch of guys shooting, the mm-hmm. unthinkable mm-hmm. And could happen and the dog could get shot. So it's not really a kidding matter. It's it's a serious thing. You need to take it seriously.
1: Right. Well, I'm definitely going to jump ahead here on, on something because you were talking about drop and uh, proper delivery uh, and teaching a proper delivery earlier. And when I say I'm jumping ahead, what I mean is what I refer to, and I've heard it referred to by others, as first look. When you're doing, um, yeah, definitely jumping ahead. But when you're doing multiples in the field, why a good clean delivery is important for that. For that first look, when that dog gets back to you and you cue him, where's your mark? And what I see a lot is people reaching down and ripping not ripping but like kind snatching. of snatching snatching there you go snatching the bird out of that dog's mouth instead of just re- putting their hand down and maybe grabbing a foot in uh, or a, 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 a foot. wing a duck foot or a wing or something and the dog just releasing it and dropping it cleanly and they're not really breaking eye contact with the area of that next uh area of the fall of the next bird um I, i'm kind of a well, I've had it drilled into me by, by a certain club member, but uh, first look is a big thing for me. And when that dog is headed back and I'm, I've already got my body position to where the next mark is and I reach down to receive a bird, you know, I really just want them to just open their mouth and kind of let it roll out. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so why is that drop or how is that teaching that drop and that clean delivery important when it comes to, you know, multiples in the field?
4: So, so let, let me, you you kind of sparked something here for me to make sure (laughs) whenever my handlers that are my, you know, the trainers that work for us are doing drill work. I stress the importance of maintaining a high standard of hold, fetch and drop in the drill process, Mm -hmm. because you're going to be doing say, 15 to 20 casts in a session. Right. And, and by casts, I mean hand signals. You know, you're know, you going to be giving the dog a hand signal. It's going to be going over here to this pile, and it's going to be bringing a bumper back to you. And in our baseball drill, we don't receive the dog. Some people do a front finish with their dog when they're doing the different casts to the different piles. We actually walk and make the dog return to heel. And so we're practicing heel, hold, and drop. 20 pounds a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So they're getting lots of reps. So I tell, you know, the trainers make sure when you grab that bumper, tell them drop and then wait for them to let go of it and then take it and put it behind you or whatever. But, but a lot of times we're in a rush, especially in the summertime. We're trying to get done before it gets too hot and we're trying to knock out those, those 15, you know, 20 retrieves and, you know, casts real quick. We get sloppy and we're taking the bumper, drop, taking, pulling out of their mouth. You're only teaching the dog that tug of war is a fun game. So that's important, first of all. Okay, so anytime your dog comes in in the field with a bird and and you're doing a multiple situation or maybe you're going to take the bird from them and you you need them to behave so that you can run a blind next. Right. It's the, the drop process is very important because when I say drop, release it, let go of it and sit there and be still. And that that's, you know, part of the command, actually. right. So for me, you said first look. The first thing I think of is when I bring a dog in on a multiple situation where there's multiple birds, they've gone and retrieved the go bird, they're coming back in. I want first look of them. Right. So when they swing in and I say, I cue them, I say, Mark, you know, to, to have them look back out there, that's my first indication that. A, I'm going to have to help them because they have no freaking clue where that other version mm-hmm. is, or, or B, this dog is laser focused and because they swing in and I say Mark and they, you know, you know like Superman with with vision just locks on it. I'm not going to have to do much. And then I reach down and take the bird. Now, by doing that, the dog gets locked in. They'll drop that bumper and remain staring at that station or that location of that bird and be ready to be sent. Yeah, Your other ones, when you say drop, they're going to drop and shake off and look up at you. And these are the dogs mm-hmm. you're going to have to be like, okay, I'm going to have to make sure and line you up because you're not quite sure where you're going.
2: When, when you have a force fetch that's so, excuse me, formal fetch that's <laughs> so well established. Get it
3: right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: when they spit that bird, that's second nature. They're using like 5% of their brain power to give the bird back to you. And the other 95% to identify that next mark. But if you have a dog that you have to say, sit, 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 hold, hold, drop, drop, you know, no, sit down, sit down. Yeah. Um, all, all their brain power is going to understanding what you're doing at the line and fixing all those other things. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I've got to kind of uh, brag on Ruby here for a minute. So I ran Ruby at our HRC test as the seasoned test dog. Now, a seasoned water test, typically, the marks are splash birds. so you know they're there can be in certain times fairly visible. but on the land series for a for a land series seasoned, it was pretty meaty and um the the go bird was about as far as the regulations allow and ruby
4: what is that i'm not real with season what is that oh, 7500
1: yards that's not i think it's like 75 i don't think it's quite 100 i'm not 100 percent sure i need to reread the rule book but for a season test you know it, it was when you're talking about clock management it was meaty and um i, I gotta say and i'll go ahead and just just poke the bear that land didn't get done There was 20 odd 23 dogs roadie. It took till two o'clock in the afternoon to finish. <laughs> so in a season water. Man. Yeah, man, season test. So anyway, so yeah, so Ruby, she goes to the, she front foots the go bird. uh, No big deal. And she got about halfway back to me and she turned her head and looked and was already identifying the area of that, uh of that memory bird. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, well there's her first look. She's, she knows where she's going. She comes in, she swings in the heel and is just, she's locked onto it. And I just look down. Said, yep. Right there. Good. And I reach down, I put my hand on one of the, one of the feet on the bird and she lets go. And I sent her same thing with the blind. I had already turned myself, was facing the blind. She, um, she comes in with the memory. She heals up and, you know, it's a dead bird. And I saw her, she per she perked her ears up. I let go of that or she let go of the bird. I took it from her and I looked down at her. and She just took a big breath. And I was like, yeah, she's, she's, she's ready. She, she, she was just on, man. It was one of those things, everything worked right. And, um, so I guess hats off to you there, darling, because you know, it, it was, it was very clean. Thank everything you. about it was very clean.
2: I learned from the best.
1: No pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was. Well, I think a lot of the
4: the sticky problems that people have are from it's created. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. it's been tolerated in small pieces their whole mm-hmm. life, and then it culminates into that. And if you'll pay attention and watch closely, you probably saw signs of it several
1: years ago. Yeah. But it was um, it was really uh, really fun to run her in that. But anyway. But I mean, we can, um, we can go on for hours and hours and hours. You know, you've got nine point drills for pattern blinds. You've got water uh, pattern blind drills. I mean, there's a, a smattering of things that we could cover, um, but y'all got to get up.
4: Yeah. I was <laughs> to say, y'all y'all,
1: y'all got to get up and go to work in the morning and so do we. <laughs> so, but, um, but yeah, man, just, we really appreciate you guys. Once again, just being, being willing to share y'all's knowledge and, and all this information with us in the audience. Yeah. Well we we enjoyed doing it. And and if
4: we could help somebody, you know, that's a that's a plus. That's that feels good to us because we we've done this for a long time. We've learned a lot of the the places not to go, the things not to do, you know. And if we can help somebody make that path a little easier, that's that's that feels good. Absolutely, man.
2: Listening to your breakdown is so cool to me because both of you have this massive understanding of dogs that mm-hmm. the majority of us will never even scratch the surface <laughs> of. So yeah. I've been sitting here this whole time, like with my head exploding, like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, the probably my favorite of the evening has been the the, the paint, the painting analogy Because there's, there's a video that comes to mind and I don't, it was a guy, he was singing the national anthem at the opening ceremonies of a a sport. I think it was a hockey game or some damn thing. And he's an artist obviously. And he's simultaneously, he's singing the national anthem, but he's also doing a painting and he's already got the, the bases there. And while he's singing the national anthem in front of, you know, a couple thousand people in this arena, He's taking a little brushes and sponges and he's putting a little bit here on this corner. And then he's throwing a little bit there on that corner. And then he's putting a little bit here and a little bit there. And then he takes this broad brush and makes this one last stroke as he's finishing the national anthem. And he spins the canvas right side up. And what you get is, is the Iwo Jima um, raising of the flag from world war two. Uh-huh. And while you're talking about that, earlier, you know, you may put a little bit here, you may put a little bit there, and then eventually you've got the big picture. That video popped into my head. I may have to share that. Or if y'all see, you you, you can, you can search. um, I bet if you just searched national anthem painting, it would probably come up, but that's what popped into my head. And it made perfect sense because you're looking at this canvas and it's upside down while he's working on it. And you're like, what in the world is this guy trying to do? And then he makes that last yeah. broad stroke and he flips it and you're like, Oh my gosh, that is, that is breathtaking. That's awesome.
4: <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what people don't understand when we're talking to them. They're like, but what about this? Don't worry about it. It'll, <laughs> it'll come. Yeah. What about this? Don't worry about it. We're going to work on this right now and, and let's fix that. And then we'll move on to the
1: next. Week. Exactly.
2: Final quick question for you guys. If we have somebody that's listening and they're trying to get their dog through formal fetch or, uh, forced to pile and they feel like they need some help. Do you offer private lessons?
4: Oh, good question. So we used to, um, we used to, but we just don't have the time anymore. Um, we, we found that it's just best and, and for, for, we, we had to kind of, uh, slimline our programs and, and, and work on the ones that were most important and not be so diversified that we're, diluted does that make sense mm-hmm. so we felt that we could do a better job if we focused our skills and and our knowledge and expertise ourselves into the dogs rather than trying to help and spend time you know an hour here an hour there for a client and and it, the busy schedule sometimes things come up it just wasn't working so our our you know if you want to text me or email me a question by all means, we'll be glad to, to, to give you some advice. But as far as like an actual training program, the best bang for your buck is to bring the dog here and let us do the obedience and the formal fetch and the field work ourselves. You're going to get the best, um, for your money. You really are. You're not with the private lessons. We just felt like it was a disservice to the owners, um, because the burden of work was on them to go home and with commitments and family things and, and activities that we're all busy with, they just weren't getting it. And it was honestly a, a waste of their money. If they'll just leave the dog here let us do the work, um, you'll be much happier.
0: But in saying that, we also do um, highly recommend that our clients that have dogs in training come out and learn sure. with alongside the dog, not on a daily basis, but you know, there's multiple opportunities for them to come out and just spend a day out here watching their dog work or watching other dogs work so that they can learn what we are. We just can't take the time to do the hour long sessions here or there, but we're happy to share, you know, what we're teaching their dog. And if we you know, if they want to sit in on a little bit of something that their dog isn't quite doing yet, we're perfectly fine with that as well.
4: Yeah, we have we have owners out all the time. And, and they, they may sit for four or five, six hours and watch multiple dogs. And to me, that's the best thing because you're getting to see repetition and you're getting to see how we handle certain situations. And just like we talked about the toolbox analogy, if I run 12 dogs and each one requires a different tool, to, to kind of work on that day. Well, when you take your dog hunting, you'll remember, oh, he fixed that with a crescent wrench. He fixed that with a screwdriver, and so that'll help you when you go out in field with the knowledge that you need to apply it.
2: I was so fortunate that you guys let me do that. I I would say that ninety eight percent of what I know came from sitting behind you and asking why did you do that. So <laughs> thank you.
4: <laughs>
2: You're welcome. Yeah.
4: It well, was, uh, we enjoy it.
2: It's been really fun guys. Thank you so much for joining us again. I think we're going to, we're going to have to talk about so, some dates for the number three. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Let, let's, let's get through hunt test season. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's get through test season. Cause it's fixing to kick off, man. So I'm not going to go through all the dates again, but guys, keep your eyes on entry express. Keep your eyes on hunt secretary. Get entered in those tests. If you're new to the sport, go watch, hang out and just see what you can absorb. There's. I promise you the majority of the people out there are going to be willing to talk to you and, and, and help you along. Uh, the judges, part of their job is to, at least at the started and junior levels, is, is to give you a hand and, and encourage you. So keep your eyes on those two platforms, Entry Express and Hunt Secretary, and look for those test entries coming up.
2: You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Audible.
1: Rody and Kristen, as always, and uh, once again, thank you very much for being on with us. We appreciate you guys. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. Good night. Y'all have a good one.
3: You too.